everyone, and welcome to the Every Word Podcast. All right. Hey, guys. Well, welcome back to the Every Word Podcast. We are so excited to have you guys back with us on this episode, and we are going to jump right into Genesis chapter 39. I've got my buddy Ethan here with me. Um, We are excited to dig into this one. A lot of great stuff in here between the two of us in our notes, so I can't wait to be able, we both can't wait to be able to share that with you and hope that there's going to be things from this episode you'll be able to glean, to be able to uh, use in your daily walk with God or just to expound your your understanding of the word. So however it affects you, uh, we hope that God is in the midst of it. So without anything else, I'm going to go ahead and jump into our reading for today. So this chapter is going to be a little bit like uh, we did chapter 38. Um, it's kind of one big long story. So we're just going to go ahead and, and tackle it as a, as a whole chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and read all of Genesis 39. I'm going to turn it over to my buddy Ethan. He's going to take care of his part of the notes and then he'll turn it back to me. I'll finish up with mine and then we will bring this episode in for a landing. So to get us started, we are going to start with chapter 39, verse number one. All right. So chapter 39, verse one says, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian pharaoh. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, this pleased Potiphar so he made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing, except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. "'Come and sleep with me,' she demanded." But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak until her husband came home. Then he said, "Then she said to him, That Hebrew slave that you brought into the house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison with where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showered him 
or excuse me, showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused him and caused everything he did to succeed. All right, Brother Ethan, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Thanks, AJ. So uh, there is a phrase that is repeated several times in this chapter, and that phrase is, the Lord was with Joseph. And if I am not mistaken, this is the first time in the Bible that this phrase is used. God is with Joseph, or as the Hebrew says, Yahweh et Joseph. So et is the Hebrew word for with. And although our English word has a, a pretty wide variety of meaning, uh, this Hebrew word et specifically denotes proximity. So in other words, God is physically close to Joseph. That's what uh, that phrase means, that God is walking alongside Joseph wherever he goes and whatever he does. There are other Hebrew words that mean with, um, but et is specifically used to show Joseph's relationship with God and how close he was to him. And as a result of God being with Joseph, physically there with him, Joseph succeeds in all he does. The key to Joseph's success in this chapter wasn't you know, pixie dust or good fortune or just sheer luck. The cause of his success was him being close to God and God being close to him. We often think that getting ahead in the world means stepping over others to reach the top or working ungodly hours to impress the boss. And I'm, I'm not saying that hard work and dedication are, are not valuable in succeeding in life like Joseph does here in Potiphar's house. But the most important key to success is not in how able we are, but how close we are to God. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, is God with me? Can I say with confidence that I walk into work every day knowing that I don't walk in alone, but that God's presence physically accompanies me wherever I go. I really think that there is a noticeable difference. So obviously Joseph was highly favored because God was with him, but there are other passages that speak of a, a, a visible or a noticeable difference in people who walk with God. So in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're led by God to the temple and they're led to pray for a lame man. And this man is miraculously healed. And he goes about walking, leaping, praising God, as the, the King James says. And as a result of the scene, the temple leaders are taken aback and they end up arresting Peter and John. And so when they come before trial, before the, the, the Jewish leaders, John and Peter, they give their defense and acts. 4 and 8 tells us that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to say to them. And so, and he begins his defense. And so, Peter is full of God's presence inside of him. 
And so this, this passage is where we get the famous statement, there's no other name given under uh, or under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It, but the following verse says something really extraordinary. So Peter's full of the Holy Spirit. He gives a defense that Jesus' name is the only name by which we must be saved. And then it says in Acts 4.13, I quote, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they marveled and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So Peter and John were just ordinary people with no special talent or ability, but there was something different, noticeably different about them and their attitude. And so the Jewish leaders made only one conclusion, that they had been with Jesus, that they had been with God. And so I really do believe that when God is with you and when you're with God, there is a noticeable difference between you and everybody else. So one thing that struck out to me when reading this chapter is how often this chapter reiterates that God was with Joseph. So this phrase is found in verses 2, 3, 21, and 23. Each time the word et is used, uh, it's denoting that God is work is walking with Joseph through all of this. And I thought to myself, you know, this is not the ideal situation for Joseph. He has been sold into slavery. Not a great situation. Nobody wants to be a slave. But even in this state, God is walking alongside Joseph through all of it. And because Joseph is in such a close relationship with God, he is blessed more abundantly than he could have ever have dreamed. Even in this situation that is way less than ideal, God is still turning the evil into something good. What was meant for evil and turning that into something good. And of course, that's a, a reference to later on in, in Joseph's life. We'll get to that in a few chapters. So because Joseph uh, you know, is in close relationship with God, he, he gets, he is blessed no matter what he does. And so I believe that the theme, if I could like summarize the theme of this chapter is that when God is with you, it doesn't matter who is against you. It doesn't matter what your situation's like. Joseph's brothers may have been against him. Potiphar's wife may have been against him, but we'll read how God just takes what those people meant for evil and they start to, and God uses that for the betterment and the blessing of Joseph. And so Joseph's faith and trust in God is what kept him, preserved him and blessed him throughout his life. So the question becomes, and I'm sorry, I'm like just honing in on this, this just one thing in this chapter, but how, how does Joseph stay close to God? How does Joseph managed to get God being with him. I believe it's because he had the right perspective about his success. So, and I say that because we read in this chapter that when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph, he tells her in verse nine, how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? So Joseph, even though he was realizing so much incredible success, even when 
Potiphar had withheld absolutely nothing from him. Even in all of this worldly success, even as a slave, Joseph still kept God as his number one priority. And because God was his number one priority, Joseph realized that it was paramount to keep himself above sin and and from sin. Sin is the only thing that has the power to separate us from God's presence. And so we we read that from from Genesis chapter 3, right? That's that's the precedent. It was when Adam and Eve sinned that they were cast away from God's personal presence that was found in Eden. So if you remember, God was walking in the garden alongside Adam and Eve every single day. But their trespass against God caused them to forfeit that proximity and that close relationship to God. Continuing on later on in the Bible, when King David slept with Bathsheba and he covered up his sin by having her husband killed, David was, was found himself guilty and prayed in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence. He realized that his sin had the power to cast him away from God's presence. And he said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David recognized that his sin had the power to separate him from God's presence. And finally, one more verse that I want to bring up. Isaiah 59, 2 says it like this. Your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I I think the effects of sin are often downplayed in church. Sometimes, (laughs) it's really funny, sometimes those who have been living for God for a long time, really it's good for all of us to be reminded every once in a while that that. That there, there's a lot of power in sin and that it does keep us from walking from God. It's the thing that cast us out of his presence in the very first place. And like I read from Isaiah, it, it builds a barrier between us and God. It separates us from God's presence. It causes God to hide his face from us and keep him from listening to us and to our prayers. That phrase, hide his face, is all about the removal of God's blessing. Um, There's a very famous blessing in Numbers chapter 6, and it talks about God's face shining down upon us. In other words, his blessing appearing in all aspects of our life. And so the converse is true. When God's face is hidden, that's when curses come. That's when curse upon curse comes. And so Joseph, whose heart and body remained pure, He was able to stay in proximity with God, in close relationship with God, because he refused to sin with Potiphar's wife. And that's why God was still with him, even when he was thrown in prison, even when he was thrown with all the murderers, all the the thieves, all the low lives of society. God still gave him favor there, and he became in charge, second just to the, the jailer. I mean, Joseph, because he has God's favor upon his life because he refuses to sin, that's why he's able to be blessed in such amazing ways. And once again, we talked about this last episode, Joseph is a type of Jesus. 
up to this point, it seems like every character in, in the story, the biblical story, has looked upon that fruit of sin, thought it was good for food, and gave in to the temptation. Uh, but Joseph, he's different. He comes to his tree of testing, and he refuses to eat the fruit. Notice the parallel between Joseph and Adam and Eve. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve by stating that they were missing out on something, that God had withheld something from them. That is being like God. Ironically, they already were like God. They were created in his image, designed to represent him on the earth. They were the most like God creature in all of creation. And so likewise, the temptation for Joseph is that he has been missing out on something that only Potiphar has access to, his own wife. And so Joseph has been given everything else. He was the most like Potiphar than anybody else in his household. But instead of giving into the temptation of, of, of missing out, right, of, of trying to, to, to recover, or I guess grab that, grasp that thing that they were missing out on, like Adam and Eve. Joseph refuses, and he keeps himself blameless in all of it. And Jesus was tempted with this exact same temptation. Satan tells, tells him, you can have all the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus looked at that tempting fruit, and he refused to eat it. And just like Joseph was highly exalted, to a position of authority and power, and not just in prison, not just in Potiphar's household, but we'll read even in all of Egypt, just like he was exalted to that position of authority, Jesus was all the more highly exalted, and he was given the name above every single name. And so you can see Joseph here really is just showing us that that he, he is really... Uh, I guess that motif, right? I talked about motif a couple motifs a couple episodes ago. This is this motif that Joseph is able to refuse the temptation. He's refused it. He refuses the sin, and as a result, he's honored, and he is foreshadowing our Messiah, Jesus, able to, although he was tempted in every way like we were, he refused to sin at all. He was blameless. He was out sin. Without sin, he was without spot or wrinkle. And as a result, he's been highly exalted and honored and glorified. And so, anyways, this this chapter is definitely pointing toward that. So that's pretty much all that I have for this chapter. So I'll hand it back over to you, AJ. All right. Well, as always, every time, the wonderful job, Brother Ethan. Um, I think you really did a great job of capturing the heart of this chapter and really the the thematics behind it and what the author was really trying to convey when portraying this part of Joseph's life. And that was that, you know, Joseph put God first and foremost in everything that he did. He valued that relationship with God beyond anything else, beyond his situation, beyond the temptations that he was subjected to. He placed God in that relationship with God above all else. So um, I think you you did a great job really kind of encapsulating encapsulating that in your notes. So, and I'll be kind of touching on that a little bit as well as I go through my notes, but to go ahead and and to get into what I have. So, um, backing it back up here to the beginning of the chapter. So 
Genesis 39, we pick up where we left off in Genesis 37. And Joseph, he's now in possession of the Ishmaelite traders um, that his brothers had sold him into. Now, we see Joseph's ultimate fate has now been to be sold into Potiphar's house. And he's the captain of the guard of the Egyptian pharaoh. So remember that at this time in history, Egypt is probably the most powerful or at least one of the most powerful uh, countries in the world. No one had the power of really that could rival the great pharaoh. So Joseph, though he was sold into slavery, he, quote, happened to land in a very powerful house, the house of Potiphar. And we know there's no such thing as coincidences in God. And we see this evident in verse two, where the scripture says that the Lord was with Joseph. And I think you did a lot of uh, pointing this out. Ethan. Um, but in fact, we see this phrase or a phrase similar to it repeated at least four different times that I could count in these short 22 verses. So, I mean, roughly 20, about 20 percent, a little less than 20 percent of the content of this chapter somewhere in there is embedded. Um, the fact that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, remember, and this is something that I, I learned about a year ago, and it really kind of opened my eyes and helped me understand. And, and many of you probably already knew this, but it just kind of it just kind of opened my eyes to the the literacy and, and how these uh, scriptures were written and why they were written in such a way that they are. So remember that when these books were written way back when, um, the literacy rate of the world was extremely poor, um, five to 10%. And that's a, that's a generous estimate of humanity at that point could read. So authors of books such as Genesis would use literary devices to help listeners understand and remember key and critical elements from the stories or passages of the scripture because essentially these books when they were written uh, during this time of very low literacy you would have somebody you know be it a priest whoever would stand up and basically orate or, or tell these stories out loud and your audience the the uh, the congregation would just be sitting there listening because they didn't have the literacy to read it on, on their own um, so the authors understood this, they knew this, so they knew that if they wanted something to stick, they were going to have to use a literary device uh, to make that happen for their listeners, because who knows how often they would be able to hear this set passage of Scripture. So one of these literary devices that were commonly used in the Bible is that of repetition. So when we see the restatement of the Lord was with Joseph <clears throat> with such frequency in such a short chapter, the author is trying to inform the reader that this is a very key point or main focus of this chapter. And you did a great job of kind of bringing that out, Brother Ethan. So the other thing, remember, folks didn't have copies of the Bible just laying around as they do today. Um, like I said, when they these were kind of broadcast publicly, so they the repetition was used to enforce these key elements that the authors wanted the listeners to retain above all else. So this whole chapter we see fairly evidently centers around the fact that no matter Joseph's situation or what was going on, the Lord always remained with Joseph. Not because necessarily the Lord was showing him in particular favor, but we see evident by the scriptures in this chapter that 
Joseph's relationship was number one in Joseph's life. And that's why the Lord was able and was with him during all this time, because Joseph truly valued the Lord. So notice towards the end of verse two, that Joseph succeeded in everything that he did in Potiphar's house. So, you know, no matter where we are or how we get there, or the situation we find ourselves in, God wants us to prosper, but he wants that, especially for those that live a life after him and seek his will in their lives. So notice that God's blessings on Joseph are not only helped Joseph to succeed, but the blessings overflowed into the house of Potiphar. And if we live that life that's after Christ and, and, uh, God begins to bless us, not only will others notice, but the blessings that God pours out on our lives can actually go beyond us as a person and can begin to bless and affect those around us in a positive way. You know, those surroundings could be our families, could be our friends, or could be our workplace, our co-workers, and the list goes on. Wherever we're at, if God is, if we've got that relationship with God where he is consistently blessing us, then those blessings can overflow and can begin to radiate outward and God can bless others because of your relationship with him. Matthew uh, chapter 5 verse 13 tells us that we are the salt of the earth. So it's our job to salt those around us, you know, to season or in other words, to help preserve or to save them. You know, it's our job to to be the salt of the earth. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, so the very next verse tells us that we are the light of the world like a city set on the hill. So, you know, a light does very little for the light itself. You know, the light The light is the light, if you will. But it's what it radiates outwards that can help others see in the darkness. We are called to be that light. When God blesses us and he's using us and we have that close relationship that he desires to have with us, then his light dwells within us and that light shines in this dark and dying world. And every day it shines even brighter because guess what? As the world gets a little bit darker, that light that he put in us, it becomes more and more effective. It can begin to reach farther and farther and farther out. So, you know, that's always the silver lining to the condition of the world. You know, we see the news and we see what's going on. We shouldn't let that bother us to a tremendous extent. We should actually, to a, to a certain extent, be encouraged by that because as this world kind of decays and falls apart, it will show, it will give uh, the ability for God's people to showcase that, hey, I've got peace in the midst of this storm. Come, you know, come to the one that gave me this light. Come to the one who gave me this peace in my life. Come to the one who's allowed me to prosper in, in spite of my situation, in spite of where I am. So Joseph's life, not light, not only helped Potiphar see and understand that Joseph's uh, God was real, but it also helped Potiphar's house prosper by mere association. So moving down into verses six and seven, we see that Joseph's obedience to the Lord and to the house of Potiphar has gained him a lot of status and a lot of success. And everything seems to be going his way. But then here we get Potiphar's wife. She comes into the picture. So, you know, life in general, but especially a life lived for the Lord, it's going to be full of peaks and valleys. You know, we talk about, you know, we love the mountaintops, but, you know, we do have to go through the valleys every now and then. It's kind of an up and down thing. Um But, you know, the only thing about when you're on that peak and, you know, when you're on top and everything's going great, 
uh, guess what? You know, as you keep walking, you're going to start going back down the mountain and you're going to find yourself in the valley again. And Potiphar's wife was Joseph's next valley for him. But we see the scriptures say that Joseph was a very handsome young man. And this is not a very normal call out for the Bible uh, for them to for the writer to have explicitly said he's handsome. Um, similar descriptions have only really ever been recorded for two other people, and those are David and Absalom. So therefore, we can infer that with the, the very small amount of mentioning of handsome men in the Bible, that Joseph's looks were very good if it warranted a, a call out in the Bible. So Potiphar's wife demands that Joseph sleep with her, but why? You know, why Why is she so lustful toward Joseph aside from, is it is it just his looks? Is there anything else beyond that? You know, um, is she not satisfied with Potiphar? You know, that's kind of some of the questions I was asking as I was reading this chapter. And the answer it could be maybe. So the word officer used to describe Potiphar back in verse one is actually derived from a Hebrew word that could also be interpreted as eunuch. So it wasn't uncommon for those in high positions closest to the Pharaoh or to kings at this day and age uh, to be made into eunuchs so that their attention could be fully focused on the needs of the one they serve. So be it a king, be it Pharaoh, whoever. Um, We don't have any hard evidence through the Bible that says Potiphar was ever made into a eunuch, but if he were, it would help to explain Potiphar's wife's sexual desires toward Joseph, seeing as her husband would naturally be unable to satisfy her in that regard. So now this doesn't excuse Potiphar's wife's uh, sexual advances toward Joseph, but it does give us a little bit more additional context potentially as to why she would be going after him beyond the fact that he was just a handsome young man. So let's take a look at, I want to take a look at Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife in verses eight and nine. And I think this really gives us a good insight into Joseph's true character, along with his devotion to his, both his worldly master Potiphar and his heavenly father, you know, God. So in verse eight, so verse eight says, you know, look, uh, Joseph saying, look, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. It shows us that Joseph greatly respected his master Potiphar, and he did not take his position in Potiphar's house lightly. And it's a good reminder to us that we should always have great respect for those that are in authority over us. And I mean, that could be um, somebody as simple as your boss. You know, it, it can be, it sh- should most definitely be your pastor. Um, but, you know, even your civil authorities, you know, uh, whoever they may be, all the way up to the president. Um, and we should be, we should have respect for them, even if we don't necessarily agree with them or like the things that they're doing. And, you know, I see a lot of this, and I didn't really mean to get on this, but I, I see a lot of this, especially in the day and age that we are in. Um, a lot of people that are calling themselves Christians and followers of God, um, you know, in church. But then if you bring up anything political, well, then they're ready. They've got a fistful of mud and they're ready to sling it. You know, if you understand what I'm saying. And you know, I don't think that's who God called us to be. I mean, you can have a, a, a disagreement uh, with a potential with a potential uh, candidate or somebody like that, but we also got to remember that we are we are the children of God. We are supposed to be uh, His ambassadors. You know, we we should embody His His love first and foremost. So we shouldn't be basically ready and willing to be getting to a, a verbal argument uh, with somebody who maybe doesn't believe the same things that we believe politically, even if 
even if the reason that we're having the argument is maybe because of a particular religious belief that a candidate does or does not hold, you know, sometimes we may use that to kind of justify that argument. But at the same time, we must remember we are God's children. You know, we are called to be like him. We want to be like Jesus in every single way. And I don't think Jesus would want us to argue uh, in the ways that I've seen a lot of people argue and uh, really be keen to throw kind of sling mud, especially when um, uh, election season is around. So didn't mean to kind of get off on that on that uh, wild rabbit, but I thought that might be a good opportunity to go ahead and throw that in there. Um but in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we see Paul reminds us that those in power and positions of authority are only there by God's hand and that anyone who rebels against them will be punished because uh, we are going against what God has instituted. And then in verse, uh, excuse me, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, reminds us that we are to pray for our leaders and that those that are in authority above us. So going down into verse 9, verse 9 shows us that Joseph knew and understood that Potiphar's wife belonged to Potiphar and to Potiphar alone. So when I read this, um, you know, I, it's kind of funny. I, I had the very same conclusion or very same uh, uh, connection that Ethan had when he made his notes. Um, I thought it drew similarity to the Garden of Eden, the situation with Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, they had control and dominion over the entire garden, yet they chose to partake in the one element of the garden that they were explicitly forbidden to interact with. Here we see Joseph's in a very, very similar situation, but unlike Adam and Eve, Joseph is both wise and reverent, and he respects the boundaries that have been placed upon him, not only by his worldly master, but he also knew that this would not be right in the eyes of God as well. So verse 9 also shows us that Joseph understood the difference between a sin done in public versus a sin committed in private, and that that difference is none whatsoever. So notice Joseph specifically states that it would be a great sin against God. And I thought that was so powerful, him saying that, because him saying this means Joseph understood that even if he had entire run of the house, which he did, you know, the Bible says clearly that he had basically full control of Potiphar's house, that with very little effort, he could have fallen prey to Potiphar's wife and they could have slept together and no one would have known it. He, I'm sure he had the power and the authority. He could have set that up, hid it to where nobody would have been any of the wiser. But Joseph knew that God would know and he he would see. Joseph had a relationship with God first and foremost. His greatest concern was not to sin against God. And if we are exposed to temptation, and we all are on a regular basis, and our initial thought is, well, what if a certain person were to find out? Or how could I get a how could I do that and get away with it? Then essentially what we're really saying with our heart is that we want to commit the sin, but we're just scared of getting caught. So in essence, you've really committed the sin with your heart, even if you haven't followed through on the action because your heart wasn't set right for that particular instance. You know, you did not have that gut reaction like Joseph did of no, that would offend God. That would be a sin against God. That would provide that separation that Ethan talked about, you know, uh, from God. So 
Our first thoughts when we fall under temptation should just be like Joseph's thoughts. We need to be awake spiritually and realize that doing this would be a great sin against God and would provide that separation. And the buck should always stop there, regardless of how easy it may be to get away with or maybe what you might think that you could gain by giving into this sin. Our first concern should always be, is it a sin against God? So, at my job at work, um, sometimes we make these things called flow charts or decision trees. And basically, it's one big roadmap and it's got a bunch of like if then statements, if you know what I'm talking about. So sometimes we want to do this with temptation in our life. So instead of saying, does God or does this sin against God? If yes, then don't do it. And end of story, like that's the end of the roadmap. That's the end of the flow chart. Um, we are bad to sometimes try to find an alternative route to get what our flesh wants. So in this example, we may be thinking, does this sin against God? Same question I posed just a moment ago. But then we could say, if yes, then will you get caught? And it's like, okay, well, if I won't get caught, the answer is no. Then it's like we kind of keep finagling and we kind of make our own roadway. And before we know it, you know, we keep winding down this road that the devil has wanted us to go on. And to the point we convince ourselves that either it's not a sin or that it's, quote, worth it. We have convinced ourselves that this is now worth it. You know, going against God, sinning against Him, whatever the worldly gain may be for that, it is now worth it. And we all know it's never worth it. So Lord, help us to be like Joseph and to have a heart after God where if I know it's a sin against Him, that's the end of it. I don't want any part of it. No alternatives. I don't want to keep trying to pluck away and find my own path to find my own you know, personal satisfaction. If I know it's a sin against him, I want no part of it. And that's where I want it to stop. So going into verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12 is where the heart of the action of this chapter is. So I want to take a second to dig into it and see what's going on here. So in verse 10, we see that Joseph is faced with this temptation by Potiphar's wife, not just once or twice, but it's a daily temptation. So can you imagine being tempted in such a manner day after day? I mean, I, I couldn't. I, I mean, I, I really, there's no way I could wrap my mind around that day after day after day being tempted uh, with such a such a thing such as that. You know, how well does this speak of Joseph's love and his dedication to Potiphar and to God that he withstood this day after day and he never let the temptation sway him or his convictions. But notice in the end of that verse that Jake, uh, Joseph kept out of her way as much as possible. This was most likely a key tactic in how he was able to withstand her temptation for so long is what he probably tried to spend as little time with her as possible. We have parts of our lives that we can't avoid, you know, like our workplace, things like that. We can't avoid and we can't really control who our co-workers are or what they stand for. Um, but we can do everything within our power to separate ourselves from any ungodliness that there may be. And it serves a twofold purpose. And the first being that it shows us to be separate as God has commanded us to be. But the second one is that it keeps us from being inundated by that temptation in every moment of our life. Um, just like Joseph 
have had to see Potiphar's wife frequently, it doesn't mean that we can avoid temptation altogether, but we can do what we what we can, what's within our span of control to actively avoid it. And God will give us the strength to endure in the moments when we can't avoid it. And a little side note in some of the commentary I read, and I did not realize this, but some scholars think that this daily temptation from Potiphar's wife could have went on for as many as 11 years. Can you imagine that? Up to 11 years, day after day, of every time she would see him, she would tempt him with this, and he had to basically just walk away. That is that is unbelievable. That is a humongous testament uh, to Joseph and to his, his dedication to God. So in verse 11, we see this perfect storm occurs, and Joseph finds himself alone with Potiphar's wife. So most likely this was something orchestrated by Potiphar's wife herself so that there could be no witnesses to whatever went on, whether it was for him to sleep with her or for him to reject her as we see that he does in the next verse. It also speaks to us as children of God that we must always be mindful of our surroundings. And I could see this kind of played out in my head, at least the way I read it and interpreted it. Joseph was probably busy. Like I said, he's running the entire house. He's probably running around like crazy, trying to make sure he's on top of everything. Um, he's probably running around. He's probably not even aware of his surroundings. And then all of a sudden he looks up and bam here he is he's secluded um potiphar's wives ran off all the help it's just him and her nobody's around and he's found himself in this compromising position so while it's good that we keep our heads down and we do the work that we're called to do both physically and spiritually we must also be aware of our surroundings and notice any subtle changes that the enemy may try to make in our atmosphere and when we do and if we do we can catch ourselves and miss that trap altogether and we won't have to suffer maybe the same fate of Joseph in this scenario. And then finally, in verse 12, we see the climax of the situation where Potiphar's wife makes a grab for Joseph, but Joseph did the one thing and one and only thing he could do, and that was to run. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 in the New American Standard Bible says it so well, no temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind and God is faithful. So he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but the but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. The key element here to observe is that Joseph got himself out of the situation that he found himself in. How many times have I wanted to say, well, why didn't God remove me from this temptation? It's because God won't physically remove you from it, but he will always provide a means of escape. When you read verse 12 in the KJV, it says that he left his garment in her hands and he fled and got he out. Notice who got Joseph out of that situation. Joseph did. When temptation arises, we must have the strength and the victory over our flesh to run away and flee from it because no one else is going to remove you from that situation. The way will be made for your escape, but only you can choose to take it. And when we choose to take that route of escape, it's another way to demonstrate to God our love and dedication to him. We choose to flee the situation so that or that we can preserve our relationship with him rather than stay and linger and fall victim to our temptation. And also, a small side note remember that at this time even though joseph was head of potiphar's household he's still a slave in the house so like there's a good chance and there's no there's no biblical evidence to back to back this up this is just kind of me thinking on my own there's a good chance even though he had all this responsibility he may have not had a lot of possessions 
to himself that he could have called Joseph's. He had control of a lot of things, but those things still ultimately may have belonged to Potiphar. Um, so there's a decent chance that Joseph's true possessions were maybe little to none aside from the clothes on his back. Now notice in the verse that he left his robe behind, maybe one could have been one of the only true possessions that he actually had. So when I read that, I thought, you know, we must be willing to leave behind any and all things that would keep us tied into temptation. Potiphar's wife had him snared and had a hold on, had him by the robe. Had he valued the robe to the point that he was unwilling to part with it, he would have fallen prey to temptation. But we see Joseph, he's willing to leave everything behind so that he ensures that he remains pure and devoted to God and he upholds his responsibility to both God and to Potiphar. So after Joseph flees, we see a very distraught Potiphar's wife who's likely embarrassed by the fact Joseph literally ran out of his clothes in order to avoid her. Um, and we see that when she recalls the story, she never says Joseph. She calls him only the Hebrew slave. Obviously, she knew him by name for as many years. He'd been working for them, I think, for 11 years. So by this time, you know that she knew his name, but the guilt of the situation would not allow her to call him out by name as she lied about him. Thus, the only way she could tell the lie was by dehumanizing him down to the mere depiction of who he was, a Hebrew slave. So once Potiphar is informed of the allegations against Joseph and his wife, we see in verse 19, he's not happy. But when I read this or when I read this initially and when I've seen this read in the past, I've always assumed Potiphar wasn't happy because he's mad at Joseph. But we see the Bible never really says Potiphar was upset with Joseph, only that he became furious when he heard his wife's story about Joseph. A lot of sources that I studied for this episode agree on the simple fact that Potiphar almost assuredly believed that Joseph was innocent and that he knew his wife was making the whole thing up. However, given his high authority and status in Pharaoh's kingdom, he simply couldn't allow these allegations to go unanswered because he's basically a representative of the Pharaoh. Now notice in verse 20 that Joseph was thrown into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. Now allegations of adultery with another man's wife in this day and time were typically punished by death. So the prison that Joseph was thrown into, the king's prison, if you will, was typically reserved for those who opposed the political viewpoints of the Pharaoh. And essentially these were lesser crimes. So don't misunderstand. It was still prison, but it was a much milder punishment than was traditionally dealt out when these adultery allegations were made. So what's my point? I think Potiphar believed Joseph was innocent and was only doing what he would have been mandated to do based on his status. I could be wrong, but the situation reminds me very much of when King Darius had to throw Daniel into the lion's den. It wasn't a personal vendetta by Darius, but he had to uphold the very law that he had decreed just a little bit earlier. So wrapping it up here, I love that in these last few scriptures, we see that Joseph, though cast down, he was not out. Twice in these last few verses, we see again, the Lord was with Joseph. Why? Because even though Joseph had wrongly had been wrongly accused and punished, he was still faithful to God and he did not use this as an opportunity to question or doubt God. That's one thing that really sets him apart from some of the patriarchs is that there's no mention of doubt. There's no mention of fear. There's no mention of questioning, no mention of him trying to do it his own way. He sticks by God this whole time. 
Joseph's attitude and his lack of rebellion is very reminiscent of Jesus being dumb before the Sanhedrin courts in Matthew chapter 26. A spirit of humbleness and meekness, all while still seeking to do the Father's will. We need to be more like Joseph when we find ourselves in situations where we feel cast down. So often we use it as an excuse to sit and do nothing but wallow in how we've been done wrong, but instead Joseph immediately found work to do. And not only did God continue to bless him as he worked, but Joseph continued, as we said earlier, to bless those that were around him. Joseph knew that God had not forsaken him and that if he was in that prison, there had to be a reason. But until then, he would keep his head down, he would keep working, and he would continue to trust in the Lord. And it's in the next chapter, though, that we'll see Joseph's time in prison was not a waste, and it became a launching point to send him to the place of power and authority that God truly had for him. So, with that being said, that is my very long ramble on Genesis chapter 39, and I will turn it back over to you, Brother Ian. Not a ramble at all. Really good information. I, uh, you know, obviously, great job pointing out the the parallels between uh, Joseph and Jesus. But, man, 11 years of temptation, uh, that is insane. Insane. And uh, definitely shows <laughs> Joseph's character. Wow. You know, and and really solidifies that connection or that um similarity between him and Jesus. They're able to withstand some crazy, uh, crazy temptation. I thought it was really interesting too, how you said that, um, uh, a lot of scholars think that, uh, Potiphar believed Joseph was innocent. I thought, thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's almost like, almost like Pilate, right? When Jesus comes before, um, before him in, in his trial and, Pilate kind of washes his hands of the matter and realizes he still has to give somebody over to them to crucify, but he just kind of goes through the motions, right, and washes his hands of the whole thing. So, yeah, very, very interesting. I I really enjoyed uh, your thoughts there. So, all right, well, I guess we've come to the end of Genesis chapter 39. Uh, really exciting story here. Love the story of Joseph and uh, excited about the next uh, coming episodes. Uh, we hope that you have a great week and that uh, the Lord's blessings be with you, that God himself be with you and walk with you close by you. And uh, we will talk to you all later. See you guys.